Father, we pray that you would indeed shape our hearts into the image of Christ. It is in his name that we ask this, in the power of your word. Amen. Please be seated. It does seem hard to believe that we've been here for more than 16 years. And I was pondering that recently and thinking about the changes in the world since we came. And I realized I I had never sent an email until after we moved here. And much less sent a text message or, you know, got on Facebook or tweeted. Uh, You know, the world has changed a lot in the 16 years. I think one of the things we might say about the changing of the world is it feels, at least, it feels sometimes that the opposition to the church is squeezing us just a little bit more. That, that, the, that the, the evil one is using culture and society to, to push us and to enslave us and, and to get to us more than ever. If I were to ask you, what do you think is the greatest threat to the church? I suspect we would get a lot of answers. If I, if I base the, the answers and the poll on the emails I receive or the websites I get directed to or conversations I overhear, I suspect that the answers to what's the greatest threat to the church would be things like Islam, uh, ruthless dictators in nations of the world, Secularism, the government. We might, we might think about things like the, some of the, the uh, things that bother us about the education system, teaching evolution, the whole idea of, of the growth of atheism. Some people might think the American Civil Liberties Union is, is a threat to the church. Depending on your perspective and your experiences and, and the things that, have, that you have encountered in your life, you probably would have a different answer. But there are two things that I, I'm pretty certain of. One is that the opposition the church faces is really not new. It's something that's been going on a long, long time. And the second thing is that I'm convinced that the greatest threat to the church is not something outside the church, but what goes on in the church. I think if the evil one can create a scenario in the church where, where we, we lose our mission and we lose our focus and we get tied up with peripheral things, And we begin to rely on ourselves instead of the power of the Holy Spirit. Then the church becomes weak and ineffectual. And our witness crumbles. And the kingdom suffers. It seems to me that this is the issue that Peter's addressing in this second chapter of his second letter. He's writing to a group of people who are are facing not so much persecution from the outside. That was more of the focus of his first letter. But false teachers on the inside. People who are, are creating an atmosphere in the church where they're denying Christ. And once you begin to deny Christ, then all that it means to follow Christ 
quickly follows. And these false teachers have, have created this atmosphere in the church where they're, they, they are, they're leading people astray. Now, as you, as you walk through this chapter, he, he gives us many examples of, of the kind of people that these false teachers are. And they're, they're pretty graphic and pretty disturbing. He talks about people who are very who are greedy. And that was his point about bringing Balaam into the story. You know, Balaam is willing to be paid to curse Israel. And, and his donkey, as we saw in the story we read earlier, uh, prevents him from, from harm. But Balaam, nevertheless, goes right on in and he's willing to take money in order to, to curse God's people. And he talks about uh, the, these uh, deceivers have, are engaged in all kinds of sexual morality. They, 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 they don't adhere to the authority that, that has been established. And, and the worst part of it is their behavior in denying Christ and denying what it means to be a follower of Christ is not just about their own condition, but they're doing everything in their power to drag everyone else down they possibly can. Verse 18 tells us that they are especially interested in targeting those who are new to the faith. And they want these people who are most vulnerable because that's who the evil one attacks. The evil one knows that people who are new to the faith don't have the grounding and they are so susceptible And that's their target. And they are dragging people away. The hard thing for us is that whether you're talking about things from inside the church or outside, the hard thing is recognizing and and coming to grips with the fact that it appears to us that, that the deceivers of this world in the church and outside the church that the deceivers seem to be gaining power and influence. When you look at, at, at who gets recognition in the world, it's usually not Christians. When, when you look at who is, who is put down, it usually is Christians. And after a while of watching this happen and, and seemingly God being silent about it, you begin to despair. And you begin to lose hope. And I think that's what's happening to the people that Peter writes this letter to. They're beginning to lose hope. And when you lose hope, you make bad choices. I suspect that one of the issues that, that is created out of their, of their despair and their lack of hope because they see these people getting away with all of this is that they start thinking, what's the point? If you can't beat them, join them. Why are we, doing, why are we putting ourselves through all of this? Why give up everything? Why sacrifice? Why surrender? Look what it's getting us. And look what what they're doing is getting them. And we're tempted to give in. Now you might say, well, you read this list, you think, well, that certainly wouldn't describe me or anything, you know, really that I'm wrestling with. And that's probably true. And they probably wouldn't either. But the disturbing thing is when you get to the last few verses of this chapter. And he, in essence, says... Some of these deceivers used to be right with Christ, and now they're not. Now, you know, that automatically brings up the big discussion of, you know, theology of, you know, between Arminians and Wesleyans, and, or Arminians and Calvinists, and how, how you're going to, how you reconcile that. Because you have, you have some, some people who believe very strongly that once you have, once you have opened your heart to Christ, Christ keeps you secure, and, and 
you can't get out of that. And there are other people who believe that you make a decision for Christ, but we always have the free will to make decisions to not follow Christ. And the reality is, if we're really honest about it, the reason those two theologies sort of coexist is because they're both true. It's the paradox of the scriptures that we talked about a few months ago. The scriptures talk to us over and over again about our security in Christ. And I suspect that that for some of us, we don't embrace that enough. But it also talks to us about the fact that it has many examples of people who have followed Christ and chosen to, to reject Christ. And I think Peter's point is not to try to make some theological uh, point here, but rather to say, whichever way you see that, be careful. Because human beings are susceptible to the evil one. And we can end up in places a little bit at a time that we would have never dreamed possible. Keep on your guard. Be careful. And of course, the best defense to falling away is moving forward. Keep your eyes on Christ. Because the truth is, we are all susceptible. We're all susceptible to the underlying underlying belief system that these false teachers live with. This idea of denying Christ is often more about how we live than about what we believe. And we so easily can fall into the trap of believing that, that being a follower of Jesus is about what we do. And we try to do things in our own power instead of the power of the Holy Spirit. Wesley Duell, who's written many books on prayer and other subjects, says that Satan really doesn't get all that upset about a lot of our Christian work. He doesn't mind at all if we are zealous about doing things for Christ, as long as he can convince us to do it in our power instead of the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, you know we're in trouble when we're trying to do more for God than we can saturate with prayer. And it is a stumbling block for us. You know, we get self-esteem by what we do. We get value and worth by what we do. And, and we can quickly run ahead of the Holy Spirit and think it's really about what we accomplish instead of what the Holy Spirit accomplishes through us. I think we're susceptible to, to, to turning from Christ when we become arrogant about the truth. And it's hard because we believe the foundation of, of Christianity is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we are convinced that the only way to the Father is through Jesus. And we preach that and we believe that. But if we aren't careful, that belief can turn into arrogance with other people who disagree with us. And instead of taking a stand, we vilify them. And we attack them. There's an article on CNN this week that some leaders in the evangelical church wrote. It was on the front page, which kind of surprised me. But it was all about trying to encourage Christians to tone down the language. To stop name-calling with our opponents. And instead to, to speak the truth in love. Rather than in bitterness and in vitriolic language. 
When we get arrogant about the truth, we, we begin mistreating people. And we, we, our main concern is pounding the truth into them instead of helping them open their hearts to Jesus. You know, underlying all of this is self-centeredness. These false teachers believe that, that, that their life is primarily about them. And the gospel teaches us that our lives are primarily about God. But how easily we slide away from that. And, and it all becomes about me, what I like, what I want, what I experience. And Christ sort of gets pushed to the side. In verse 19, Peter talks to them about the fact that they are subject to the one who is master over them. And as I've thought about that, he says, you know, we're, we're all subject to the thing that's mastering us. And, and it made me wonder, what exactly is mastering us? What is it that masters me? And I, for the next 60 seconds, I'd like for us just to think about and ponder this question in silence. What masters me? Father, give us eyes to see the truth about what masters us, what pulls at us to draw our attention away from you. And give us grace to let you be our master. Amen. It's because Peter knows what can happen when we lose hope that he says to the people to whom he's writing this letter, I want to, I want to give you some hope. This letter, this letter, and particularly this chapter, is really not addressed to the false teachers. It's addressed to the rest of the church, the church that's following Christ, the church that's, that's trying to be the Christians that, that Christ created them to be. The people who are struggling with hope. And he says, you have hope. And here's why God is faithful. God keeps his promises. And the promises of God in this context are like two sides of a coin. On the one, hand, on the one side, you have God's faithful promises to be just toward the wicked. Now, we don't like talking a lot about that. We don't... I know people who simply don't read the Old Testament because they don't like reading about the judgment of God and the punishment of God for sin. But the reality is it is true. Not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament. Our God is just. And, and don't we want him to be just? I mean, don't we want a society and a culture that, that is just? Don't we want people who, who mistreat children to face the consequences of that? Don't we want people who, who hurt deeply other people to face the consequences of that? 
Don't we want people who, who start civil wars and, and demand all kinds of atrocities on humanity to, to pay for those crimes? We want justice. Our justice is flawed, but God's is perfect. And Peter says, our God is just. And even though it seems like he's silent about the evil in the world, he's not. And I'll prove it to you. Let's look back at the Old Testament, he says. Just take Genesis. Let's just, take, let's just pull three stories out of Genesis. And he talks about angels that, are, that have been sent to hell. And he talks about the flood. And he talks about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. We're pretty familiar with the flood story. The people are so wicked that God says, we've got to start this all over again. And, and we're pretty familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah. The people of that city are so wicked that, and, they're, and they're dragging people into their wickedness that he has to put an end to it. We might not be as familiar with the, uh, the story, the idea about the angels being punished and sent to hell. And there's a lot of speculation about what Peter means. But more than likely, it's a reference back to Genesis chapter 6, right before the flood. And it says in the beginning of that chapter that, that the, the sons of God married the daughters of men. And more than likely, and again, this is you know, a little bit of speculation, but Jewish, Jewish tradition is that the sons of God are angelic beings. They're the angels who decided to part with Satan and turn on God. And a part of, of their evil and their wickedness was to marry and to corrupt the people on earth. And it's out of that corruption that the flood comes. And Peter says, if, if God punished the ungodly in the past, you can guarantee you he's going to hold accountable the deceivers in the present. And we may not see that, that punishment now. We may not see the justice as we live, but eternally it's going to come. And it's a part of, of who God is and what God has promised. And, and we feel a sense of hope that God is just, that he's not ignoring the evil in the world, that he's not letting it go, that he doesn't care. His silence is not licensed for people to do whatever they want, nor is it apathy toward the evil in the world. We just have to trust his timing. But God is just. Now, it's important, I think, to, to understand that when we're talking about this justice that God is going to, to send on people, that we're talking about people who, who know God and have chosen to reject God. These are people who have chosen evil. They're not innocent bystanders. They're not people who, who didn't have a choice in the matter. These are people who, who have chosen the way of evil. And, they are, and their goal is to drag as many people into evil as possible. And it may, you know, we, may, we, we might wonder, well, you know, what exactly is the cutoff point here? And I don't know the answer to that. Which is why we go back to be careful about your walk. Stay close to Christ in your journey. But I don't think he's talking here about, you know, that we, we might sin. Because we all sin. But the desire of our heart is for God. And the desire of their heart is for wickedness and evil. When I mean, he says, you know, God, he rescued Lot. And he, he says, Lot's righteous. You read the story, you don't get that picture. 
You know, when you read the story of, of, of Lot, you have compromise after compromise after compromise that in, gets him into the situation he's in in Sodom in the middle of, of this wickedness. And yet, when push comes to shove, Lot stands up and says, I really am for Yahweh. And he's rescued. And that's the other side of the coin. Is that God is not only faithful to be just, God is also faithful to rescue the godly from our trials. And we think about God rescuing us from trials, we think he's going to remove the trials from our lives. But when Peter says God knows how to rescue us in our trials, he's not saying, telling us that we will, he's going to eliminate difficulties. Jesus said to his disciples, if they rejected me, they're going to reject you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. You need to expect this. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus says. And in fact, followers of Christ tend to have more trouble than people who don't follow Christ. It's seemingly, at least, in this world. More opposition from the evil one. So, rescuing us from trials doesn't mean eliminating the trials. It means that God is going to be faithful to us. And that God is going to reward us. And he's going to bring us through the trials to his eternal end. Just as he rescues Noah and his family, just as he rescues Lot, God is going to rescue. God is, going, God is faithful to those whose hearts are turned to him. What does it mean to be godly? To be rescued? Well, Jesus prays in the prayer, deliver us from evil. And that word deliver, same word that he uses here in Second Peter to rescue. Lord, our prayer is that you would bring us through the evil that we face in this world. That you would give us strength to stand tall in the midst of the difficulties that we're facing. It's the same word that God uses to describe, or the scripture uses to describe God bringing his people out of slavery and rescuing them from the Assyrians and, and rescuing them from, the, from their enemies. And it's all because of God's grace and mercy. Not because Israel is, is so wonderful at following God, but because God loves them. And because the desire of their heart, at least for a period of time, is to follow him. So to be godly, is to be the opposite of what we see in, in, in these false teachers. It's to put Christ first. It's to be willing to surrender and sacrifice our will for what God desires in us. It's about being willing to acknowledge that we need help. That we need to be rescued. That we cannot do this on our own. And it is being will, it's willing to be vulnerable in whatever way God chooses to rescue us. Even if that rescue is, feels like silence while we live out our days on this earth. Someone was telling me about a family member that was out in a sailboat one day and it broke down and, and they were stuck. And they sent a helicopter to rescue them because the waves were starting to threaten to capsize the boat. And the helicopter let, was trying to let down something to help them, but the mast of the sailboat was in the way and they couldn't, they couldn't rescue them. And so the only thing they could do was to tell the guy in the boat, you've got to jump into the water. 
It took them quite a while to convince him to jump into these choppy seas. That looked a lot more dangerous and a lot more of a problem than staying in the boat. But the reality was if he stayed in the boat, it was going down. And eventually they convinced him to jump into the water and they were able to let down the buoy and to rescue him. And we have to have a certain willingness to be vulnerable, to let God rescue us in the way that he knows is best. And that will probably mean enduring silence and enduring questions and and, and wondering what in the world God is doing or not doing. But because we believe God doesn't forget his promises, we trust him. What often appears to us as silence is God's patience, is God's concern and compassion. And the people of God who are on the road with God are are people who have that same sense of patience and compassion, even with wickedness, with people who are struggling with wickedness and evil and who oppose us. And we stand up to them and, and, and we stand up for the truth. But when we, when we understand the road down which people are headed and that they are going to face the justice of God, instead of us going, finally, way to go, God, it breaks our hearts. It, it breaks our hearts to think that, that people are going to end up in eternal punishment and face the eternal justice of God. It doesn't cause us to celebrate. It causes us to weep and to mourn because we care about people. As Jesus mourning over and weeping over Jerusalem in those last days of his life and knowing that the people of that city are going to put him on a cross, he weeps for them. He laments for them because of the decisions they're making. And we weep and lament for the decisions that people make that brings them face to face with the justice of Almighty God. It's hard to have hope sometimes when the world seems so out of control. When it seems as though evil and wickedness and and deception is gaining instead of losing. And it feels as though the pressure on God's people, whether that's from outside the church or inside the church, it feels as though it's tightening every day. But we have hope because we know that we worship the one who keeps his promises. And we know he keeps his promises because the tomb is empty. Because Jesus is risen. And because Jesus is risen, God wins. And everyone who is with God is swept into the victory. So in the midst of the silence, in the midst of the questions and the wondering, can we trust that God is in control? 
Can we trust that God is good and that God is just and that God keeps his promises to us and to everyone? Heavenly Father, we wrestle with the silence and the darkness. Today, give us a new glimpse of hope through the resurrected Christ. Give us grace to be godly people who love you and who love others, who stand for your truth. in a world that stands for everything but. Fill us with your grace and give us your hope through the mercy and the strength of Christ, our risen Lord. Amen.